The famous psychedelic rock band Pink Floyd has a very famous song, and it goes a little something like this. Feel free to sing along if you know it. Do 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 Money. For as long as I can remember, money has always been something that has given me access to the things that I need and has prevented me from doing the things that I also would very much like to do and maybe to get the things I need too, simply because I just didn't have enough of it. Now, money has been a thing of obvious discussion for many years. Money can cause people to be evil. It can cause people to be generous. And it is truly something that is what you make it. And my earliest and most shocking memory of money was when I came home from school. It was 2008, and it was the day of the 2008 market crash. And I remember 410Ks of parents, including mine, all but went up in smoke. They disappeared. They went somewhere else, and no one really knew why especially kids at the time, did had no idea what had happened. And all I remember was sitting on my couch at home, watching the news and seeing the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, his bank, Chase Bank, getting bailed out by the government via millions and millions of dollars. And that, to me, signaled the very first time I had seen a supervillain in real life. Supervillain, honestly, kind of ridiculous, a very hyperbolic statement. But you have to understand, I was younger. I didn't really know who these people were. And it kind of dawned on me as the older I got, this idea of the 1%, just it just works so much. Because we are pointing fingers at these rich people that have more than us. And that really don't have a face. We really don't have rather a face to the name of the 1%. They do seem like just a group of guys meeting in a top floor of a very, very tall corporate building. They could all, I don't know, even wear black hoods like it's some kind of Sith council meeting. But the 1% did come off as villains. And as a kid, (laughs) I just always imagined that they were just always sitting in the corner, um, somewhere in a very luxurious, dark-lit room, laughing at people scrambling for extra money for rent, laughing at people uh, scrambling to pay more and to keep up with their school payments, laughing at people that just can't afford food. And I just always imagined it being a little bit like this. (laughs) (laughs) 
A few weeks ago, I was reading an article saying that the United States loaned Israel $2 billion in military aid. Frankly, I don't know the ins and outs of how the government spends its money and it gives its money to certain countries, how it helps, how it doesn't. But I think we can all agree that that is a lot of money. That would mean a lot to so many people. And it's just a very interesting idea that so much is spent on war, so much is spent on hopefully deterrent, but it seems like a lot is spent on devices, these things that are just made to cause more chaos and destruction. And frankly, when I do hear the phrase $2 billion for military aid, this is what I hear. So I'm not going to get very political, but I'm just going to speak a little fact, I think, into the air, right? So it is just an interesting idea that so much money is in the hands of so few people. I mean, the gap between the 1% and the 99 is growing and growing every single day. And in terms of money, that's a scary thing because a lot of people that need money just will never see possibly as much as they can go with to live a nice bountiful and very reasonably comfortable life. So I think it is a good idea to see where and when money was handled in a way by so few people that had disastrous results for the rest of the population. So we're going to travel through time a little bit and talk about the 2008 financial crisis with an expert. So we're going to be traveling to, rather, you're going to be traveling to uh, next week. Don't don't tell Pastor Jordan that you're coming to visit. It'll really freak him out. You're going to be traveling to next week to hear someone talking about something that happened in 2008. Listen, you're not traveling that far, but give me a break. I'm trying to make this as, in, hold on. I'm trying to make this as enjoyable for you as possible, okay? Let's be honest here. Financial jargon isn't the most interesting thing that someone could listen to, but I really feel like the teacher, uh, Professor Sabas, is going to do a great job of explaining the financial crisis to you guys. All right, just give me one second. Let's turn this thing on here. Okay, so I don't know what interdimensional travel sounds like. So if you hear anything weird, it's not my fault. Just bear with it. In a couple minutes... Uh, you'll be in the past listening to Dr. Sabas tell you about the 2008 financial crisis. All right, don't get lost. I hear from you guys soon. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, fire.
reach your destination. Uh, the government has implemented uh, an act which is called the Community uh, Reinvestment Act. Um, this um, bill was supposed to help everybody to get its own house. So the bank were asked to uh, give uh, opportunities to every citizen who would like to get a house to have it. And uh, this uh, act has been reinforced in 1989. Um, it's a, a, a little bit complicated act that has been uh, implemented in 1989. It was the Financial um, Institution Recovery um, and Reinforcement Enforcement Act. And uh, this, uh, during this um, period, the banks that have been able to give uh, a high level of loan to household, to house uh, owners or people who wanted to buy a house, they were well, how can I say, well seen, um, good appreciation. Uh, from the Fed and from the government. So this was encouraging banks to give more and more loan, and especially at this time, the interest rate was low. So during uh, all the period of, um, if I remember, 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, the interest rate was very low. So it was very easy for somebody to get uh, a loan and to buy a house. Uh, for example, in 2003, and it, it remained stable, the interest rate was about 1%. And also, um, people who wanted to buy a house, they got another um, program or possibility that was, uh, which is called, um, it's like having a flexible interest rate. Okay. A flexible interest rate, it's called uh, adjustable rate mortgage. That means that you are going to um, got, get a loan with a low interest rate, but this interest rate is going to adjust if we have a change in the Fed, uh, the Fed uh, fund rate. What is a Fed, the Fed fund rate? This is the interest, the target uh, interest rate that the Fed is going to um, publish. Uh, and this is used to um, regulate uh, the quantity of, of, to regulate money supply in the economy. So this is a rate that is used by the banks among themselves for what we call overnight loans. For example, a bank, a bank with an excess of liquidity for a day will be willing to lend money to another bank with, uh, that falls short of liquidity at the end of the day, and they are going to use this rate. Okay, and um, but this uh, the second bank is uh, has to reimburse the day so as uh, the debt, as uh, a loan the following day. This is why it's called overnight loan, and with a low uh, a Fed funds rate, so the banks are able to uh, give low interest rate also to their customers. So at this time, this uh, uh, rate was was very low, and people were able to um, borrow money with. Uh, um, a flexible rate that means that if the Fed funds rates was raising 
that means that their mortgage was also going to raise. But the good aspect of that is they had a low mortgage. So now, till 2003, as I said, the interest rate was very low, but the economy was growing. We had a high uh, economic growth and uh, for euphoric time, yes. Um, demand for housing was, was increasing. And you know, um, new uh, home permit is a very good indicator for an economy. That means that if we have an increase in new home permits, that means that we are going to have a lot of uh, construction of new houses. And when we talk about new construction, this is a good um, leading factor for mm. the economy. So everybody was buying houses and the economy was growing, demand was growing and etc. So it was a, 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 a you say euphoric period. Mm. Okay. So when we are at this point we need to understand that inflation is at the corner. So at this time, so now we were with uh, the Fed um, president was uh, Greenspan but unfortunately he has been unfortunately I don't know he has been changed and uh, Bernanke uh, started uh, as a new president of the Fed but because uh, the economy was growing so fast uh, we had some risk of inflation so in mm. order to limit the risk of inflation so he decided to increase the interest rate so from um, December 2003 or December 2004 uh, the interest rate, the Fed funds rate started to grow by 0 0.25 points every month or every two months. And when we go to, to December 2006, it was already at 5.25%. So you see, uh, moving from 1% to 5.75%, it's a lot. So if you buy a house with an interest rate so low, and now you have to face a such high interest rate, you understand that your mortgage is going either to double or triple, etc. So this is what happened. And especially, uh, we should not forget that uh, all this happened un under the, um, um, how did I call it again, uh, the uh, Neighborhood Investment Act, mm. or the Community Investment Act, meaning that we are dealing with people with low income. So low income, buying houses with an adjustable rate mortgage. So those people have been trapped. So it was the first aspect of the, the financial crisis. The second aspect is, uh, and this is uh, the human being nature, being greed or being um, the love of money. So the financial system, I also should say that we were in a situation of deregulation, deregulation of the financial market, meaning that the government uh, was not regulating the financial market, so the banks started to act as hedge funds, and you know the hedge funds usually they are not controlled by any rules. So many things started to happen in the financial market, especially innovation. Innovation in the financial market means that we are going to have a branch of new financial products. And probably you might have heard about um, uh, the mortgage-backed uh, um, security. The mortgage-backed security means that, uh, for example, you are a home buyer, so you are going to take a loan from a bank. So the bank is going to sell 
this loan to another financial institution or an edge fund and they are going to bundle this loan to with other type of assets and they are going to create a new product a new financial product so they are going to sell this new financial product so this financial product is a mixture of different type of loans very secure loans but also very risky loans and also they could slice you know mm -hmm. slime this product so they were selling so finally we find uh, we ended with a multiplicity or a diversity of new financial product and also they were using a uh, very complicated software to, in order to deal with them so nobody could understand what it was and what was the value of this uh, financial product uh, this mortgage uh, mortgage backed uh, backed security so many people bought them edge funds bought them in financial institution bought them not only in the u.s but also out of the u.s and why did they do that? Because we were in sort of spiral, uh, more demand in housing, more the price of housing is, incre is increasing. So as we are saying, in, in a euphoric situation, economic situation, everybody thinks that this is going to last and everybody was trying to make money from the situation. Okay? Uh, so it was a, a good opportunity on this financial uh, product because they are not very secure, they could um, bring a high income, high uh, interest. Okay? So many people were interested in that. And uh, this, what we, we, we call a bubble, a bubble has been formed or developed in the home uh, housing market because we have a growing demand and more demand increases, more the price increases. And as I said before, everybody wanted to take advantage of this uh, 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 euphoric situation and the price continued to increase. So everybody thought that was going to last. But uh, finally what happened, uh, when Bernanke increased the interest rate, you can imagine many household, many house home buyers could not reimburse their debt so finally in the in in the mortgage uh, backed securities we had a lot of uh, mortgages that could not be reimbursed uh, we uh, found ourselves with a financial uh, product nobody could know their value and their value were decreasing was decreasing uh, with with time so now we discover that those home buyers couldn't many of them couldn't reimburse their mortgage and also i should say that the bank they started to do that knowing that you are buying a house you don't have the income to pay the wage to pay but they know that the the, the banks they knew that they are not going to lose their money because they are selling the mortgage to another in financial institution so they knew that they could get their money okay uh, so finally when uh, the mortgages could not be reimbursed by the home buyers so everybody started to uh, to panic okay and uh, those houses also the idea and this is why human being we, we need really to be careful about uh, how we deal with money uh, those houses they knew that they couldn't have uh, they didn't have enough income to pay a house but you're saying thinking 
if I cannot win balls, I have the possibility to buy to sell my house. And what I'm going to get from selling my house, I will be able to reimburse the bank. Mm. But because we ended up in the situation where may in the interest rate increased, most of, of the um, home buyers couldn't reimburse. So what is going to happen? Nobody wants to buy a new house. Okay? And because nobody wants to buy a new house, the demand for house is decreasing. And because demand for house is decreasing, so the price also is decreasing. So now, if you bought a house at two hundred and fifty thousand, saying that okay, I'm going to buy it at three hundred thousand because price is increasing, now you are going to find yourself with a house who is worth only two hundred thousand. Mm. You are losing on it. First of all, and secondly, nobody wants to buy it. Okay, so this this what we call the subpri subprime uh, uh, crisis. Um, first of all, people who couldn't afford it, who bought houses. And uh, with all this, this combination of situations, including the fact that they had taken adjustable rate mortgage, uh, the Fed is going to increase the interest rate, uh, or there's new, um, there's innovation, innovation in the financial market with new financial products. So the financial crisis started. So uh, now I said that the banks were selling their uh, uh, mortgage-backed uh, um, securities to other banks, to other financial institutions, to other hedge funds. They were selling this in the second uh, in the second market, etc. Everybody were, were buying. So now nobody wants to buy them anymore. Okay. Also, the banks they didn't want to lend money anymore to their uh, to the other banks because they knew that in the books of the bank, in their balance sheet, most of them they had what we call junk assets because in in the balance sheet of a bank we have the liabilities, we have the assets, and the, in the assets is where we we find all the loans that the banks gave. Uh, to the household, to the home buyers, etc. And finally, those assets f didn't have any value now. Okay. Um, so this is the situation, and uh, so um, many people they lost their house uh, because they couldn't reimburse on the debt, nobody to buy them. Uh, many people who had bought these assets, this MBS, um, they lost their money. And uh, uh, finally, and I said, the banks, they didn't want to lend money anymore to anybody, to, to neither to the other banks. So we, uh, we found ourselves in a situation where the economy was going to collapse. Because if you as an, a company, you cannot get loans from a bank to continue your day-to-day -day activity, so you are in a difficult situation. Also, the interest rate, the high interest rate, uh, people cannot consume anymore. And even though, because uh, the Federal Reserve uh, started to decrease the interest rate, but this didn't encourage people to continue uh, taking loans to uh, consume more. So uh, consumption dropped. We have consumption that drops, uh, also production because the companies cannot get a loan from the bank to continue their activities. Um, so we are in a situation where the economy is stagnant or it's in the risk of collapsing. 
Hey guys, hopefully Dr. Sabas was able to explain it to you very plainly and very clearly. I know she did for me, and she's a great lady. She is a teacher over at the business and finance department here at my school, and I'm just really glad that I was able to talk to her, and she was such a great help, so I really want to thank her for that. But I think it was important for us to really get clued in on what happened so many years ago so we don't commit the same sins that those that came before us committed. Because the way we spend money is very important because it honestly affects other people, whether we like it or not, and whether we see it or we don't. I talked to some friends over these past couple of weeks And they were able to really help me understand how they see money and how their perception of money has changed as their roles in their own lives have developed and have changed over time. First, we're going to talk to my friend Kevin Thaw. Now, Kevin is a student here at my school, Andrews, and he cuts hair. He does that regularly every weekend pretty much, but he has created that hair cutting space and that business into a business where he has his own website called thebarberstable.com. Quick shout out. And I have been able to see, and it's been a pleasure to see him develop his craft and develop his business over time, where now he's selling t-shirts. He is getting a YouTube video that is starting to become more and more prominent and more popular as it has been going on. His social media is very involved, is very inclined to those that are receiving content from it, and I really want to see how Kevin has seen money over time with his experience. Go ahead. Uh, it didn't really change my opinion because it's not, nothing really new has um, influenced it, really, because I've been working since I was younger. Probably, like, the first time I got a job was the summer before my freshman year because... My parents always told me that I um, I need to get my own stuff. I'd always want sneakers, like Air Force Ones were hot back then, blazers. I'd always want them, but my parents would tell me, you want it, you got to use your own money because you don't need the sneakers. And if it's a desire like that, then I'm not going to get it for you. My parents got me literal, like, literally like one, like an Air Force One, and that's the only shoes that I desired that they got for me. But otherwise, it was just church clothes and like basketball sneakers but um but yeah if anything it would probably be um owning the business has maybe shown me that spending money is making money which is contrary to anything I've ever been taught you're told to get money and um and then hold it and save it but money depreciates in value so it makes absolutely no sense to hold it you're just you're literally losing money the more you hold it. Mm-hmm. So, um, if anything, I guess the business could have, you know, introduced me to how important investment is and investment is. Because my whole my whole thing, like my whole box, everything in there, everything I own, probably costs everything I bought, probably close to like two thousand dollars. And I wouldn't have known it because I love it so much. I just get what I need and. If I don't need it, I don't buy it. I put money into here, and it comes back to me. So, yeah. Now, here's Reese. I think what he is about to say is something that we have all been before. And I'll let that speak for himself, but 
just so you know, Reese is a sophomore here at my school, Andrews, and he is a communications major. He's really good with the camera, a great videographer, and here's what he had to say about spending money, saving money, on a camera he recently bought. It's uh, not necessarily buyer's remorse, but I did buy, like, buying expensive things. For instance, like, I bought this camera, and I really liked it. But because it was so expensive, I treated it like a baby, and I barely used it. And then it was, like, sitting on, like, my shelf for, like, every so often I would use it, but not as a lot, a lot that I would like. Mm-hmm. And then one day I was like, you know what? Forget about it. I'm going to use it because I spend money on this. And it's better to use, like, I guess, an object or use a um, use whatever you buy, even though it hurt <laughs> to buy it to buy, uh, to buy it in general. But still, like, yeah, that's that's what I feel. Where when you're buying expensive purchases, it's just it it's harder to use that purchase for something because you're in fear of breaking something valuable because of the value it it held when you bought it. Now here's why money is just so funny. The value of something can actually prevent us from using it. We spend so much time trying to save money in order to spend big wads of it to get something that's really expensive. But since it's so expensive, sometimes we barely even have fun using it because we know that if we have too much fun, if we aren't careful enough, it could break and that money, that value, poofs into thin air. Here's Amy. She's a graphic designer, and she works at Whirlpool. And she talks about a little bit on how she used to work for herself, but how she honestly appreciates working for someone else. Hey, she's getting money either way, but the way she's getting money, the shift of that has changed quickly over the course of her young adult life so far. And what she had to say was quite interesting. I think it speaks for itself. So since you've been become a graphic designer, I guess <laughs> your own business, yeah, right? It's, ha- it's happening. How how has your perception on money changed from the, for the before and the after? I mean, as a graphic designer, it's kind of something that you know you're going to have to work with eventually. Um, but designers mostly don't want to work like with money. It's it's a touchy subject for a lot of people. It's it can kind of be a little um, intimidating, actually, to go, you know, if you're on your own, you go to a client and you say, like, hey, I want to do this design for you, like, and we get really excited about the project, the artistic side of things, like, the the idea of making something or doing something creative, but when it comes to actually supporting that and getting to money, um, a lot of designers do a really poor job at it, and, and me personally, like, I feel like I've had to grow a lot in terms of, like, asking for money and, and the right amount and talking with clients about money, um, it can get really awkward really fast if you don't know what you're doing. And I think we even worked on doing the logo, yeah. and, and you'll know, like, I was really rusty when I talked to you about that, and I just felt so bad that I wasn't bringing, like, the level of professionalism that I expected from myself to that conversation. Mm-hmm. And, like, thankfully you are just, like, super forgiving about that, but I felt just kind of stupid at the end of that because I'm like, wow, it's been a long time since I talked about money with a client, and I need to get better at it because it's something that you need to practice if you're not good at it. If you don't do it, uh, you kind of lose that skill. Um, but we had one class in the design department about how to do business, and I think it was a good primer, but to really be good at it, you need to you need to really practice it yourself. Um, but in it, uh, the teacher talked about doing um, 
sorry, the, the teacher talked about, uh, can I start over there? Oh, no, take your time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so we had one uh, business of design to class mm -hmm. uh, where the teacher had us like go through what we should be charging our clients. Um, and we calculated actually like a year's salary based on our skill, uh, what we'd need to rent, the supplies, like everything. We kind of did this whole formula for what we should be charging our clients to make a fair wage, like a fair yearly wage for ourselves. And it was actually really enlightening um, because a lot of designers uh, undersell themselves, especially uh, students starting out. And I think it's good to be humble in your pricing. Like, you don't want to scare people away. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, if you don't charge enough, no one's going to respect you as design talent. They're going to see you as a tool, and they're mm -hmm. going to take advantage of you. Um, and so pricing's not only just a game of fairness, but it's also a game of, like, psychology and perception. Like, if I charge a lot, even as I'm starting out, like some people might respect me more and respect my opinion, which is what I want. You know, I'm not I'm not saying like, hey, respect my opinion just because. I mean, I, I went to school for a reason. I have this like service that I'm offering that actually takes skill and qualification. So I want people to value that. If I don't charge enough, some people are just gonna, you know, not listen to me or they're gonna try and like steamroll everything I think and, and coming from maybe an unqualified opinion, it's it's not gonna do them any good. So you try and find that middle ground there. Um, I don't know about talking about exact numbers for what I charge. I mean, <laughs> because it gets a little touchy. And actually, my family, um, my dad especially, has kind of, like, set a precedent for us and our family. Like, it's probably better not to, like, say what you make or say exact numbers, like, especially for everyone to hear. But, I mean, I don't mind having private conversations about it with people sometimes, um, especially, like, with clients. You know, it's different for each client, honestly, what you charge, um, who's going to see it, how big is the client, um, and how much value are you bringing to your client um, based on how many customers or maybe viewers they have with your work. So you kind of have to evaluate all of those different factors when you're talking about that. Um, but one nice thing when it comes to getting paid for design work is um, I actually work at Whirlpool now. Um, and so I am not naming my price anymore. I'm not working as a freelance designer so much, although I might do that on the side sometimes. But I'm actually working, you know, just an hourly job. It's it's a desk design job. Um, and it's actually, for me personally, I like it a lot better. <laughs> it takes a lot of the stress out of, um, you know, design where you're deciding your own wages and you're doing the whole business side of it. Like, Because for me, I'm not a business student. I don't really care that much about that side of things, even though I know I should. Uh, I just want to design things. Like, I want to think creatively. I want to think critically about the story I'm telling to the world. And, uh, you know, when you're doing that on your own, you sometimes don't have the luxury of doing just that. You have to do everything, which I think is commendable. But for me, in my stage right now, I'm a lot more comfortable working for somebody. Um, and maybe eventually, I'll, if I get better at it and I learn a lot more, I'll become a pro at it. Um, but for now, I think I'll work for somebody and if I do some freelance jobs I'll I'll use what I know I'll do my best um, and I know there's tons and tons of books that help you like figure out your pricing and what's fair especially for new designers like you'd be surprised about how many books are out there um, because we're just kind of bad at it in general as designers yeah, that's what I got yeah. <laughs> now my very dear friend Wandile and the CEO of Ubuntu Designs. Now, what he had to say, I found profound and very interesting because as he runs his nonprofit that builds homes in South Africa and hopefully beyond over time, he has realized that money and its worth has made a dramatic shift in his life. And honestly, 
We'll leave it to Wandile. I think it really speaks for itself. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is uh, Wandile Tiana from Durban, South Africa. <laughs> what? Money definitely changed the way I speak. I speak. You know my voice. <laughs> this guy's a fool. Yeah, no. Uh, definitely, uh, money is a means to an end. It's not an end. And um, I'm running a non-profit uh, with a couple of my good friends and uh, working with architecture school at Andrews, uh, just changing the world. But the thing is, with money, we, we are running on a non-existent budget. <laughs> so I'm technically poor, but I still find myself flying from Durban to Cape Town to Joburg to uh, Austin and to New York and staying in these places and speaking. Um, because we are in a process of developing our concept and also of just... Uh, working with different communities to help enable them to grow economically but also provide housing but what I've seen is that we've been able to do all this stuff without money <laughs> which is crazy uh, but like every step of the way God has been providing so it has helped me kind of be more dependent on God than anything else where money follows you know what I'm saying if you take care of God's work God will take care of your work uh, I'm not saying our organization, nonprofits, will always kind of be functioning at this level of monetary deficiency. But as we're building our prototype in our first house and helping the family and working with the community, we are at that point. And it has just helped us realize that money is not the goal, but it's all about the people. And in serving the people, money follows. So that's what we've been doing. We've been planning stuff, taking steps by faith, and then out of nowhere God has been providing money for flights hotels this building this so it's just been an amazing experience so all of us young adults we don't know too much about money but I think we're all learning as we go in whichever age that you are as you're listening to this podcast all I want you to know and maybe even just take away from this is that let's not commit the past atrocities that have involved money Let's be more responsible consumers. Let's, let's let money not put value in us, but we put value in the money that we have to the point where we are always in control of what we're spending and how we see the world through its varying price tags. I'm just going to be frank here. I never like spending money. I have buyer's remorse and I get it pretty quickly. And I've always tried to make sure that money was never an object of what I wanted to do. I wanted money to not be something that pushes me into what I want to do with my life. I wanted money to not be a motivator into who I end up being with or where I live or however you want to put it. When money is a question, when money is being brought forth into your life, I personally believe that you should always make sure money is not the pure motivator of the decisions that you make in your life. Because to be honest, if that is the case, you could be one of, not all, but you could be one of those one percenters that frankly only gives two craps about money and literally nothing else. I think the UK rock band, Everything Everything, touched on this idea very, very well in their song, 
no reptiles. Many believe, and a very specific author, believe that the higher-ups, the rich, the 1%, are really just reptilian aliens disguised as humans trying to take over the world. Yeah, I know it's ridiculous, but just stay with me for a second. What Everything Everything makes a point on in the song is that there are no reptiles. The people that are on top are people, and that's it. The 1%, the people that are so awful at handling the money that we essentially give them, honestly, that could be us. Those rich people, the J.P. Morgan Chase CEO and the CEO of all the banks in 2008, and people that are rich and control a lot of the wealth in this country today, hey, that could be any of us. And maybe that should be a sobering fact that really makes us think, man, I could be a reptile if I simply had the opportunity. Thanks for cashing in your time and mine. Stay smart.